This is the Find Your Forte podcast, episode 38. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte podcast with choral director and lifestyle entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast, bringing you another weekly Wednesday episode. This is episode 30, uh, 38, actually, with Zach Hill. And Zach is a new friend of mine here in New York City, and he is a very interesting fella, to say the least. He is the Chief Innovation Officer at the Future Project, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about that. I love their mission and what I've read up on, and uh, he's had quite a a, a fun life so far. So we always start with the same question and, and then we'll get into the interview. Zach, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? I am ready. Let's get ready to rumble. All right. Fantastic. So Zach, um, if I were to meet you at a cocktail party, which essentially I did, um, and I asked you what you did for a living because I was a terribly boring person, what would you say... How would you respond to that question? Well, fortunately, I love to talk about work because literally what I do is connect people with their passion and purpose and train them and support them in making that a reality, not just kind of once, but in living a lifestyle of passion and purpose. So I'd probably say something like that. So would you say that you help people find their forte? I think that that is the literal words that I would use. If only I knew someone with a podcast that I could talk further about. <laughs> Listen, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pursue any any trademark you know claim cease and desist. So you're welcome to use that if you'd like. I'm quoting you on that. All right, fantastic. And you have it now on record. There so, we go. So we're good for the masses to hear. Um, so tell us about um, your. Like rewind. Let's get into how you ended up at the Future Project. But let's start from the very beginning. I, I recently listened to an episode of NPR's Planet Money, which is, by the way, Choir Nation. If you like microeconomics, uh, that is one of the coolest podcasts to listen to. It's like fifteen to twenty minutes. It's always really funny and uh, very informative. And Zach happened to be on this episode uh, last March. And uh, he was talking about uh, a Beanie Baby empire uh, that he created when he was when he was a child, and it's really funny because I have a like Tupperware tub of Beanie Babies in my attic right now, and within that in that Tupperware tub is a a plexiglass case with a princess. The bear, the purple one that that was that came out after Princess Diana died, and I have I have one that was released the day it came out. I won this thing from a company called Zany Brainy, which happened to be in Newtown, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and uh, I haven't touched it since the day I won it. It's been in this plexiglass container. Um, tell me about your Beanie Baby empire. Yeah, I mean, Beanie Babies in many ways were kind of a commodities market, and it was good to know when you got in, and it was good to know when to exit. 
Uh, in fifth grade, I amalgamated uh, several hundred Tupperware containers of Beanie Babies uh, because I flipped one, essentially. I, I realized that, you know, I saw one on sale for a store. It was the height of this huge craze. And I remember a classmate of mine was like, oh, I'll pay $10 for that. So I bought it for five, flipped it for 10, thought that was a pretty impressive profit margin and said, I wonder how far I could take this. At the time, my mom was traveling a little bit for work. And at the time, the internet wasn't a very, very big thing. So you'd have Beanie Babies that were on sale in Idaho, in West Virginia, in California, in New York, at a Cracker Barrel or something for $5 or whatever the retail is. And no one was using eBay, so no one knew what you could get those things for if you could find the right market for them. Uh, I, as a child with no bills to pay, spent all of my time on the internet and said, huh, there's some opportunity for arbitrage here. So I think that was my first, I, I guess that was my second hustle. My first was playing Tekken 3 at the arcade for quarters over oh, the summer. Oh, love Tekken, yes. Incredible game, but I think, the, I think the Beanie Baby gig was a lot more lucrative. And how lucrative was it? I made in total, they misquoted me a little bit on the podcast. I made about $50,000 in total. I think I netted about $22,000 in profit. <laughs> Wait, and how old were you? I was in fifth grade, so. <laughs> That's amazing. As, as an insufferable only child kid, you can imagine what that dude sitting on like actual literal piles of money was like. Uh, I'm I'm thankful for my friends for suffering me through that period of my life. What what, what did you what did you do with the money? Oh, uh, th- there's a whole lot of stories about it. Some are great, some are not. So I mean, I invest I invested a decent amount of that, uh, you know, and, and sat on it like a good responsible person. Uh, there's a whole nother story about my grandmother having stolen a decent amount of that that I set aside for college. That's a whole nother tale that we may or may not get into. Okay. And then uh, a little bit of it I invested in a couple of other businesses. Uh, I, I, I tried to start a biodiesel business uh, later on. Uh, did okay, but not gloriously or anything like that. And uh, yeah, and the rest of it just I, I kind of kept. So I, I wish that I could say I blew it all on blowing hookers, but uh, I was a little too young for that. <laughs> God, I think this might be the first choir podcast where where a guest said blow and hookers. All right, this is fair. I, I want to use that explicit tag so bad on 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 iTunes, and I got to use it once, um, like on a recent podcast. I got to actually click the explicit tag in in my host, so that when it uploaded to iTunes, it would say explicit next to my track because I I think I said damn or something. But I'm 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 gonna ch- I'm gonna check it on this one too because blow and hookers that's a great that's a great thing to add to acquire podcast. I know that I am from Memphis and we're known for our explicit lyrics, so I'm just trying to rep where I'm from. That's you know? true, and you're doing a great job. So thank you. Um, this is really funny. Okay, so then you you okay you were in the Beanie Baby. You you netted a twenty some odd thousand dollars in the Beanie Baby world. You tried to start a biodiesel company. So did you you went to uh, Chinese restaurants and and took all their 
fr- cooking oil? That, or? that literally was basically it, was hitting up a bunch of fast food restaurants in the Memphis area. Uh, th- this was not by any means like a big operation or anything like that. But, you know, I, I was doing that for a while. I started playing uh, the card game Magic the Gathering pretty competitively. So I had to be able to, you know, buy cards and travel and things like that. Uh, that, you know, was was a, a pretty big undertaking for a significant part of my life. Uh, I was in choir in ninth grade. All right. That is the extent of my... Qu- uh, I, I was going to say choral, but we talked about that earlier. That was the extent of my choir nation experience. And uh, I, I did a bunch of theater in in high school as well. So, I mean, I was doing 400 million things for most of my young life. Basically, I could never just sit still. So I was always trying to figure out what the next big thing always was. Always scheming. Uh, you know me. Before I even had a goatee, I was stroking my chin all the time. <laughs> There's a picture of me in my mom's house. I'm like maybe two going on three years old and I just look like an evil dictator. I'm in like a Santa outfit, like with my chin in my hand, just Uh, staring nefariously at the camera. Stroking your hairless cat. (laughs) I needed one of those. (laughs) Everyone needs Mr. Bigglesworth. It's just actually there's there's somebody in my apartment building that actually has a hairless cat. That's terrifying. Is it a zombie? No, it's actually like a real hairless cat. And she has to like moisturize it regularly. It's very odd. It's very, very, very odd. odd. Okay, so so I think one of the the coolest things about your your bio here is that you were a game designer, lead game designer for the card game Magic: The Gathering. Now, this was a card game that I don't know. I guess maybe it came out when I was in elementary school or something, and um, might have might have came out earlier than that, but uh, I had a friend who played it, and he tried to teach me, and I was in the Gifted and Talented program growing up, and I could figure this crap out, Um, talking about mana and all sorts of, can you, yeah, like, you got into this as a kid, and then became a game designer? Did you just apply for this job? How did that work? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's funny. The story I always tell is that my mom got me into Magic the Gathering. Uh, I was you know, playing soccer a bunch. I was, uh, at one point, I believe the youngest Taekwondo black belt in the country. I was very into martial arts for a while. Uh, and, and I was doing all these different things, and my mom took me aside and was like, Zach, like, when you win this soccer match, you get a trophy, when you win this magic tournament, they give you $1,000. Uh, you might want to consider stop doing all those sports and stop playing all that chess and play this card game that pays you money. So my mom got me into competitive magic gathering. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Memphis and I, you know, it was never unclear. You know, my parents were wonderful, uh, but they, you know, spent a ton of their money to get me into this private school growing up. And there wasn't really a whole lot left over for college or left over for a lot of experiences beyond that. So it was always kind of me uh, trying to figure out like, okay, how would I push myself to the next level? So magic was really useful for a variety of different reasons. There were professional tournaments all around the world. Uh, you know, Prague, Japan, Switzerland, South Africa, Brazil, all kinds of places. 
And so playing on the Magic Pro Tour was a way to see the world. Uh, and it was also a way to get scholarship money to eventually go to college, have that. Because, you know, $22,000 from Beanie Baby is a lot of money. It's also not what college costs. Mm-hmm. So, there, you know, it was basically I played Magic because it was enjoyable. It was competitive. It was something I could get very good at. I could master it. And it was a ticket to do a bunch of things that were very important to me in my life, generally speaking. Uh, you were talking about the Magic job. I was not only a Magic player and a fairly prominent one. I was one of the early sort of uh, video, I guess, online celebrities within that world. Mm-hmm. That and and also a fairly well-known author in that community. So I think a combination of my articles, my playing ability, my video content, and my sort of uh, knowledge as a theorist made it, you know, the the a good package to apply for that job when the time came. When did you start playing? I started playing when I was eight years old, and I started playing professionally when I was about 15. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, it took a while. Okay. Yeah. It, it's very easy to be very bad at that game for a very long amount of time. Gotcha. Okay. I see. So you, where do you think you got this sort of, um, I'm looking for the, the right word, um, there's a, a certain spark or motivation to go out and seek out experiences on your own. Um, does that come, did that come from mom or dad or is that, what do you think that came from? You know, I, I mean the, the way I process it, you know, as far as I can remember, I was always, uh, this is kind of a, a strange direction to take this, but I was always afraid of dying. I mentioned I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. You know, my, I grew up in Hickory Hill, Memphis, a uh, neighborhood that, that wasn't the, the safest neighborhood growing up. And we were robbed several times when I was younger. I was robbed at gunpoint a couple of times, one time on a trip with my family to Florida. And uh, it was always present to me that life was not something you could take for granted, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and not only that, there were all kinds of people I knew that didn't walk out the other side of that. And so I always was asking myself, you know, what am I going to do to earn the right to live this life that through no merit of my own, through no, none of the things that I was traditionally really rewarded for, I was able to experience when so many other people were not. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the reality of the responsibility of that, um, not, not in any sort of guilty way, but in an opportunity-oriented way, you know, what can I do with this experience that I'm able to have to make it the best and most valuable version of that experience for myself and the people around me was a question that was always on my mind. You know, I, I've been reading the book The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. Have you read that book? I have not, no. It's a great book. And one, he, he goes around to talent hotbeds all around the world to try to find, find out their commonalities. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he found, um, and he was, he was talking about certain uh, music camps and, uh, you know, tennis f- training facilities in, in, you know, the Ukraine and things like that, is that there's a certain level of discomfort right? They don't have the best facilities and it's on purpose, right? Because if they were, if, if, you know, if you had grown up in a beautiful neighborhood and had nice things, I'm sure that you wouldn't have that same mindset. You know, you would, you, cause you would be comfortable enough to not care so much about, about what you just talked about. Do you think it had to play, was that, was that play into your attitude a little bit? That, that, that's really, really interesting. I think definitely, you know, I, I was never a kid that like felt totally out of place, but I think in, you know, the, the, the private school that I was attending, I was not from the neighborhoods that the people I was going to school 
with were from Mm -hmm. the stuff that was going on with my family was not the kind of conflict they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. But when I was growing up, you know, on Mendenhall and Knight Arnold, like I was also not like the people who lived around me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, again, I, I think I developed the social vocabulary to figure out how to fit in with a lot of different people. But I do think there was a discomfort there of, of the idea of, you know, I was not going to just be dropped right into a situation that I kind of had to earn my my seat at the table, mm-hmm. as, as it were. And, and so I think there's a lot of truth to that. So you went from, I'm looking here at, at your sort of your bio, you went, you were, we were on to Magic the Gathering. Is that what, where you went to right out of college? No. So I won an amazing fellowship that I would urge anybody here under 30 to apply for called the, the Henry Luce Fellowship. And it's basically an opportunity to work in an area of your expertise uh, in Asia for a year. It's sort of like a Marshall Scholarship or a a Rhodes Scholarship or Rotary Scholarship Mm -hmm. or something like that, but to Asia instead of the UK. Okay. I was was working while I was a senior in high school as a policy advisor to the mayor of Memphis, and I wanted to do policy work in an area abroad. You know, it's interesting because it always sounds like so many different things, but to me it was just, you know, it's all... What are the mechanics? What are your objectives? And how do you use the mechanics to get the goes, whether it's policy or games or anything else? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I spent a year in Malaysia working on freedom of information policy. I actually ended up passing the first Freedom of Information Act in Malaysia, uh, and as well as doing a lot of citizen journalism training, some art exhibits on the Constitution with a really amazing organization called uh, the Southeast Asian Press Alliance and the Center for Independent Journalism. So it was, yeah, a very... Uh, there were a lot of things going on at that point in my life. So freedom of information meaning opening public records to the people? Precisely. You know, the, the idea is that uh, all government records is things that people's money go to mm-hmm. really ought to be things that people can look at and know what their money is being spent on, know what the officials they're electing are doing, right? And this has been a part of, you know, as part of the Swedish public code for 400 years, but is just now gaining traction in a lot of Southeast Asia and Malaysia in particular. Okay, so you went from there. Then where did you go? So it was there, and then I accepted the job at uh, Wizards of the Coast as the one of the game designers for Magic. I thought that I might work with the UN in Malaysia. I thought I might get a consulting job. I was talking to McKinsey Melbourne randomly through uh, my friend Sean. But I, I, was, I was basically uh, drunk one night and uh, not really totally sure of what I'd be doing the next year, had been playing a lot of Magic and basically sent a letter that I do not remember at all to Aaron Forsythe, the director of Magic R&D, basically being like, here's what I've done, here's how I understand the game, do y'all have any openings for this? And I mean, these are people that I've worked with and that I knew it wasn't mm-hmm. like totally out of the blue, right. but I, I never thought in a million years that I'd actually try to become a game designer. It was a dream that I'd had since I was young, Obviously, I spent a lot of time on magic, but it was never really part of my professional sphere of aspiration. But I mean, how could I say no to the opportunity? I was I was flabbergasted when I got the email in my inbox saying, yeah, they were interested because I was like, I don't remember reaching out to y'all. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because opportunity finds us when we're like not looking for it. And I mean, you kind of maybe in your drunken stupor, we're not looking for it, but but maybe it gave you the uh it it lubricated you enough 
to make to make the choice to to just go for it. And and I do think there's something real in that that is is actually very salient, which is a lot of the time we self-handicap, right? We have narratives about what is and is not possible in our lives. We sort of say, "Oh, here's all the reasons why something can't work." And I think that you know, for, for a lot of people, the job, you know, a job designing the game that you've played since you were eight years old would seem like one of those things that's so unattainable that it doesn't occur to you to reach for it. And so I think that there was some upside to just not forming a thousand reasons why that would be impossible and instead kind of going for it. I mean, I'd been setting myself up to do something like that, I think, for a while you know, just kind of accumulating leverage. And that's important too. I don't want it to seem like it's like, oh, I just, you know, essentially cast a bottle into the ocean and there it was. Right, you know, right, there's right. Just something on the horizon. But I do think that's that's real, right? Just not erecting more barriers than you need to, to your own personal becoming. Now, you had already contributed lots of value to the magic right. world. I mean, right. now, not just as a competitor, but I mean, through writing and... Right. And I mean, I'm assuming, did you YouTube... Well, at the, at the time, YouTube wasn't really a thing, mm-hmm. right? This, so this was around 2007, 2008, so YouTube was just getting started. Mm-hmm. But the thing that was around was uh, there were a lot of magic lifestyle websites. Okay. Uh, one was called StarCityGames.com. There are a few other ones. Uh, that Basically, people that like magic really like magic. So before content marketing was even a thing, a lot of people that sold magic cards realized that if they got people going to their site, a lot more people would buy cards. And mm-hmm. for magic players, most magic games are not like, oh, this is the thing I do. It's like th- I identify with this. It's something right. of a lifestyle thing. So it was a very natural place to drive people to content day in and day out. And for me as someone who also was was blossoming as a writer, uh, it was a great way to develop my writing ability, connect with a lot of people who were interested in the same thing I was, sharpen the way that I thought about the game, and you know contribute value to all the people that really liked magic. So I spent most of my time writing articles. I also had a bit of a background in acting. I was a child actor for a hot minute before the Beanie Baby business. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the sort of early video scenes that started just on these sites and eventually migrated to YouTube were sort of a natural place, particularly for a community that is in, in many ways, you know, a lot more introverted people. A lot of people are not necessarily as comfortable in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. So I was able to kind of step into that market just a little bit and capitalize right. on my Yeah, I mean, right, you, you, found, you found a niche where you knew you could be pretty strong. So, you know, one of the things I, I definitely want to hit upon is the fact that, you know, you did contribute value to the Magic franchise before making that ask of of them whether it, whether you remember it or not right and and um you know choir nation one of the things that i want to i want to point out is that you know choir is very similar to magic in that and that it's a it's a very niche place it's a very small world most likely i'm assuming magic is a very small world yeah everybody quite, knows each other right I mean, it's bigger than we think but it's also small enough that that if you've made some bit of a name for yourself, people know who you are. Right. Um, and uh, and the choir world is very similar, too. And there are a lot of people that want to be recognized in the choir world, I'm sure just like in the magic world, recognized for, for contributing, or they just want to feel important, right? One of the easiest ways to feel important or, you know, or, or to become a valued member of, of any niche audience is to contribute to it. 
And I'm, I'm assuming that most of the things that you contributed, you were not paid for, right? Oh, no, I was definitely paid for them. But, uh, you know, early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the magic articles right now go for about like $400 an article. Uh, really are going for it. Yeah, I was making like 100 an article or whatever. But I, I mean, All right, womp womp choir nation. Sorry about that. <laughs> but your point stands, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not like, oh, you're I mean, you're not going to make a living off $100 an article. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to make $100 an article until you I mean, you know, I, when I was not getting paid to play Magic when I was eight years old, right? right? I mean, I was playing from eight to age 15, losing horribly, <laughs> very well, okay, often. Okay, this is very so. interesting then because, because, you know, we have this constant struggle, I think, in the, in the music world of people undervaluing what we do, mm. right? Now, I'm saying work for free. I always say work for free. This podcast, I don't get paid to do this podcast, right? This podcast is something that I, that I contribute to the choral niche. And, uh, and I spend a lot more money on it than I make, you know. Um, but there are certain other benefits that come along with being the host of a podcast. You know, if there's somebody comes into town, Ryan gets free tickets, you know. Um, and, you know, if, if, which is great because I love choir. I mean, that helps, right? If, if, the, Magic, if the Magic Crew tournament, you know, was coming to town, um, I'm sure that they would reach out to you and you'd be there and you'd have a special privilege of some kind oh, oh, because yeah. of what you've contributed. But going back to the sort of working for free thing, um, it, in contrasting this with a, with a different niche audience, um, do you feel as though uh, the, do you feel as though you would have written those those articles and, and stuff if you if you weren't getting paid for it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and and that is, I mean, the reason that you're talking about contributing value, mm-hmm. I always find a lot of, you know, I have friends that are kind of in the personal brand development space and I have a ton of respect for the work they do. I think they're, they're sort of right in a descriptive way. But I really do think that one of the best ways to grow your brand, as it were, is to contribute value to, to fields you care about with people you care about doing things that you care about. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when you put that out there and people see not only the the fact that you're willing to do it, but the quality of what you do, uh, that pays off so much more than like if you were getting a, a wage for that investment. Exactly. Time. Right. And the example that I'll give is when I went to Malaysia, you know, uh, because of the work that I was doing, you know, a lot of the other people on the scholarship that I was on were having real trouble. You know, I mean, you're, you're isolated from your friends. You can't go back to the United States for a year. You oftentimes don't speak the same language. You're basically stranded in an environment where you know no one for a year and have to make sense of that. And that's part of the experience. When my plane touched down, mm-hmm. I had 300 people who had been reaching out to me through various game stores saying like, we are so excited that you were in Malaysia. We're so excited that you're kicking it. Please come hang out with us. And they made me feel welcome. They made me feel like I was part of a family and they made me feel like I was home, which I I, I can never, I was, you had developed relationships in Malaysia through this niche that had nothing to do with your mission for being in Malaysia. Nothing remotely like it. And in fact, the nature of those relationships was one of the reasons I applied for the game design job because I was realizing that this thing that I was doing, you know, recreationally was actually connecting people in a more fundamental way than the policy work that I was doing whose ostensible aim was to, you know, make society more connected. What, is there drama in the magic world? Oh goodness, yes. Yeah. What what is what is drama like in in that in that world? 
Because oh. we got drama sometimes in Choir Nation. Uh, not well, not in Choir Nation because they're my people and they're cool. But somebody else's Choir Nation, maybe a little drama. So, like, what what is drama like in the choir in the uh, Magic World? Oh, if, if I mean, there's everything that you can imagine under the Someone sun. Someone stole my Black Lotus. There's literal card theft, okay. which is like, oh, that's annoying. And then you're like, no, wait, that's like several thousand dollars worth of cards. There's uh, people dating each other's significant others, uh, some big large-scale cheating scandals, both cheating on each other and cheating in the game. Mm -hmm. There are, you know, there's a bunch of teams that work together before tournaments. And so when one person leaves one team for another, that's a huge scandal. That's a lot of drama. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're bringing a deck to a tournament that's secret. It's sort of like your playbook in a sport. And uh, a few times, disgruntled team members have leaked the deck to other teams before the tournament. You know, which, which, which is a loss of like several hundred thousand dollars, really, when you think about the payouts of these events. So, yeah, I mean, if there's a, if there's a soap opera-like story you can think of, it has happened in the magic world. I never really thought about all the possibilities. There are a lot of possibilities. Choir Nation, what the heck are we? I think we got it good, comparatively speaking. I'm a, you know, nobody's leaking my 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 uh, my repertoire, you know, to other people. I wouldn't care if you did. Um, <laughs> gosh, I'm trying to think of an of an equivalent. I think I think what I see in the in the choir world is it's something that that just pisses me off to no end, and I'm and I it's my becoming my mission to fix it is this idea that success is a zero-sum game, right? The idea that if I tear you down, that, that some reason, for some reason that makes me more successful. I mean, I definitely have haters out there in Choir Nation. No, not, again, not Choir Nation because they're cool. But right in the choir world, there are people who are like, who the hell is this Ryan Guth guy? Where did he come from? Or whatever. You know, I, I might post on a... Um, here's an example... I uh, recently wrote a sales script um, for private voice teachers mm. that would like to convert their students from 40, 30 minutes to 45 minutes a week, right? Here's a way to increase your revenue by 50%, right? Use my script. You can call your best students and convert them to 30, from 30 minutes to 45 or 45 to an hour. This is free money. I'm giving, Ryan is giving away free money. Right? And, what, and what Choir Nation doesn't have is money. Because we're all music educators. We weren't in it for the money. Right? We were in it. Right. But, but we would also like to be able to pay our car and send the children to Taekwondo and all that kind of stuff. So, so I wrote the sales script. And I posted it on a, on a Facebook page. And I get this, I get this message saying, like, <laughs> saying, like, you're self-promoting. Like, I'm not asking for your money. I'm giving you free crap. Like, here's free money. Um, and, and, you know, and it's funny because I'll put these things out and it's like, here's, all, here's this, I have a wealth of knowledge. You know, I ran, a, I ran a music education company for, well, I still run it. And I was doing a quarter million dollars a year while I was still teaching full time. Like, I know, I know what I'm doing. I know how to do right. this, right? And I'll post something on Facebook. I'm like, I'm waiting for people to be like, thank you, right? And instead I get, blowback and it's just like i don't understand it like i do not get it and it, it's so funny because in the entrepreneurial world um the attitude is what can i do to help you i like what you're doing 
What can I do to help you? And I recently went on a cruise with some of the most powerful podcasters in the, in the world. Um, you know, one of, one of them did a half million dollars in revenue uh, up in one month. That's amazing. In one month, not through spo- ad sponsorship, that was part of it, but, um, you know, through selling a course on how to podcast, which, which I bought. I mean, it's something that, I mean, I bought months ago, and that's how I learned how to do this. And, um, and nicest guy ever, genuinely nice guy. Like all the people I was with, six and seven figure podcasters, bloggers, right? And, you know, there's about, you know, 40 of us and uh, 10 of us were, you know, paid for an additional, you know, VIP treatment. We were going on excursions and stuff with these, with these people. And I, you know, created friendships, actual friendships with them. And the, the attitude the entire time was, listen, Ryan, you're here. I'm here to help you. Like, what can I do to help? It sounds like what you're doing is great. You know, like, use it, right? And I feel like in the choir world and many other worlds, I'm sure, there's this idea of, like, if I spill my secret sauce, then potentially they're going to steal it and that, and that they're going to, you know, run me off the track. And then, like, what will happen? And I'm, right. I'm, I'll be nobody. I won't be important anymore. And it's such crap. Like, it is such crap. Like, what is your feeling on the zero-sum game success yeah. thing? Yeah, the, and, and my experience is definitely comparable to your experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, mean I, I think it really does boil down to a kind of insecurity, right? And, and to any, like, I don't begrudge people for ever feeling a type of way, but I do encourage people to investigate the narrative of, like, why, if, if you feel threatened by someone else's success... Like it's worth examining what the root of that is. Is the mm-hmm. root of that because they literally are posing a proximal threat to you, or is it because you, in comparing in comparing your trajectory to theirs, feel a sort of attack on your personhood, right? And that's like really when you break it down and get real about it, a lot of what's going on. I don't judge that, but it's important to identify what it is. I think there's a comparable phenomenon in. You know, I mean, whether the music sector, I was a writer for a long time in writing, you know, you have these people that are like really, really worried about like protecting their IP and copywriting everything. And Mm -hmm. like, they don't put stuff out there, you know, whereas we at Wizards wrote, I mean, we've written game design columns for aspirational game designers for 20 years. And part of that is it, I think it's good for your brand to put things out there. Mm -hmm. Part of it is just when you've already succeeded, you're less insecure. So of course you want to see other people succeed. And I think a part of it really is... Uh, a genuine desire because of what you've experienced to share that with other people. I think that a sign of, you know, it's people do not achieve great things by ensuring that other people do not achieve great things, right? Like maybe if you do that successfully, okay, great, but you're still at level one. So there's only so far you can get by dragging other people down. And I mean, I know that's, that's so self-evident. It's almost a platitude, Mm -hmm. but definitely my experience with the people that have, have really produced awesome, great value added things is that that's just not a concern for them because they don't feel that same sort of personal threat of fighting for the scraps, uh, you know, that, that, that other people are kind of in the scrum for. So I, so I think I agree with you. And I think one of the things that I, that I feel is important for choir nation is to celebrate little wins, right? Show gratitude yeah. 
and celebrate little wins. You know, my, my, my choir sang in unison and it was in tune today. Pat yourself on the damn back, right? And, th- and that will make you more open to hearing good news from other people, right? Celebrate little things, right? What, what other things do you feel like would be a, a good strategy to help people get out of that insecurity. Right. I mean, the first thing is, is just when you think about it, like if someone else is succeeding and maybe they're succeeding more than you are at a particular point, but like, that's good for you, right? Because suddenly you have a relationship with someone who's succeeding, right? That's also true. Right. So in a practical sense, it actually is good for you. I think another thing that's important, you know, I mean, as a magic designer, like I got a ton of death threats, like literal death threats. I had stalkers, I had whatever. So the the thing to realize is, is true. Yeah, literally, this is factually true. People can tell you stories about it. I have some of the emails. I have some of the letters. Oh my gosh. Uh, you will never be free of people who dislike you. Haters. Haters. You will never be free of people who dislike you severely. And there's an imp that is always on your shoulder, is always on my shoulder speaking for myself of, no, but if I do everything right, I'll get them to understand where I'm coming from. If I do everything right, I will get people to like me. If I do everything, you know, in so many ways, we're just walking around all the time saying, I want you to like me, do you like me? Mm -hmm. And hoping to get validated. But there's no magical uh, formula to please everybody past a certain number of people. Yes. I think it's destructive to then take that to an opposite extreme and say like, oh, I just don't care about anyone's opinion because it's good to have like empathy and be another directed person. Right. But if you absolve yourself of the need to feel like, oh, if you just work hard enough, you'll persuade everybody that you're great. You will realize to, that you can lean into the people that really do want to support you and give yourself permission not to feel threatened mm-hmm. by other people that are just not bought into what you're all about because that's great. You're not entitled to being best friends with everyone in the world. For right? sure. I, I, have this, I have this idea that I think it's good to be a polarizing figure, right? Because that means that you're, that, you know, you're going to have fewer followers than, than somebody who's a little more lukewarm, but your followers are going to be way more passionate. Right. Right. So if you like what I'm doing, then, then you are totally with me. And if you don't like what I'm doing, you can be like, screw the hell out of him. And just, but they'll probably still keep listening. You know what I'm saying? Like, like there's also that too. I mean, take, I mean, look at our, look at, Look at politics right now. I'm not going to, I don't want to get into it, uh-huh. you know, but I mean, there are particular figures on, on both sides of the aisle right now that are incredibly polarizing that have massive, crazy followers, insane followers, and nutty, ridiculous haters. Absolutely. I mean, if you make people feel a type of way, like they have entered into a relationship with you. Maybe that's a hateful relationship. Yeah. Maybe that's a loving relationship. Maybe that's just an irritated relationship, but it's some kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that the most successful way to be a, a content provider of any kind, and mm-hmm. I don't use that term derisively, but like literally someone that is putting out things with which other people engage is to make them feel a type of way. Yeah. Uh, the amount of people that I, I, we used to keep track in the wizard's office, I'm not going to name any names, of people that would serially, serially threaten to quit magic. And there was this one guy who had threatened publicly to quit every year for like 15 years, right? So, you know, I mean, if you make people feel a way 
They may in the moment say they want nothing to do with you, but my experience is very much that that is not something they're always going to follow through with. And if they do, that's great, right? I mean, there's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of things to do in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you're stepping into your authentic self and like people don't want to receive that, then like you don't want them as a part of your audience, right? I agree completely. I agree completely. And, and, you know, I was, I was going to add to the, um, discussion and, and I want to make sure that we get, we get to the, like what you do in the future project, because I feel like if we wouldn't be having a lot of this discussion, if people were doing the thing that they were passionate about, right. If they actually made the choices, um, to, to pursue something that made them genuinely happy every single day, right. There wouldn't be a, cause we'd be fulfilled. They don't, you don't need to be a hater when you're fulfilled. You don't have time to be a hater when you're fulfilled because yep. you're so busy doing what you love to do. And I think that's the importance of finding your forte. And that is the importance of, of what the Future Project's mission is, I believe, as well. So um, would you get into it a little bit as to what the Future Project does and then potentially how we in Choir Nation can support what you do? That I would love to. So the Future Project's an organization to supporting inspiring people to live with passion and purpose, to discover what matters to them and do something about it, both now, in the future, and for the rest of their lives. Something that's really, you know, we, we talk a lot about passion and purpose. Uh, we, we work with young people. We, we have a methodology we kind of call, I want, I can, I will. So I want something, I, I can, I believe it's possible to pursue that thing, and I will. So I'm going to take action in pursuit of that. I'm not just going to sit on the couch. I think something that uh, we, we sort of talk about and think about a lot, though, is the idea that, you know, a lot of time discovering your passion, your purpose means to people like, oh, I want a career that is X, Y, Z, or I want an interest that's driving. And I think those things are important and matter and oftentimes fulfill that. But for some people, what's passionate to them is being a loving mother, father, husband, or wife. Absolutely. Right? For some people, what's passion, what they're passionate about is being an extraordinary friend who's available and supportive to the people with whom they're sharing their life experience, mm-hmm. right? So, I, I, you know, when you're talking about um, you know, advice... I think the first thing is to really spend time feeling what actually drives you. When are you the most fulfilled? When are you most in flow? When are you most content? When do you enjoy experience? When are you happiest? When do you feel the least self-doubt or anxiety? Mm -hmm. Whatever the things in your life are that are positive, and a lot of the time they come from very counterintuitive places. Um, so, you know, I think that is, if there's like a supply chain of like living with passion and purpose, I think the place that hangs most people up is at the very, very beginning. You know, they may realize like that what they're doing or spending most of their time doing is not where it's at for them. And they may have identified like, oh, I really like fishing, but I don't know that they've really conducted an inventory of the vast array of experiences we all have and figure out like, when do I feel most like me, right? Um, so, so that's a th- place I think people get hung up. I mean, I'd love to s- self-promote us a little bit more. You know, please. You, you know, in in terms of how to get involved, you know, we're not just 
a youth program that's working with students. You know, we have our dream directors in seven cities across the country, in in 50 high schools across the country, and that's growing and growing. Explain what they do. Yeah, a dream director is a full-time role within a high school that's basically kind of like a combination of a coach, a teacher, a performing artist, a community organizer, an activist, and like the best you know guidance counselor you can imagine having okay right and and you know it's somebody that's bursting with energy and yet practical enough to make things happen we like to think of dream directors as dreamers and doers and uh you know they they come from all kinds of backgrounds but basically what they're saying is you know they're, they're getting a group of students within the school we call a dream team to kind of identify a vision for their school in concert with the principal in concert with teachers in concert with each other and figure out how to make the school a place that realizes that vision they're also leading and coaching their other young people we also have a cohort called future fellows in schools which are students that the dream director is coaching through discovering pursuing their individual passions okay so they they, they're pursuing projects that they manifest over the course of a year Uh, not necessarily just one project a year but these are things for you know really small things like i want to learn how to play piano i want to start a club to really big things you know i want to launch an app i want to have a nationwide movement uh, of young people you know some of these things span cities but the the common area is you know and, and this is backed by a lot of, of psychological research and a lot of education research that shows that these attributes are what actually cause young people to thrive but ultimately we believe that like nothing in school your test scores your grades your career any of that matters if you're not able to live a full and fulfilled life and paradoxically knowing what it takes in your life to live a full and fulfilled life allows you to attain all kinds of the secondary factors, whether it's academic success, relational success, money, skills, anything that you need to make that possible. So we believe it's a cycle and and we think that a lot of unfortunately where education's kind of gone off the beaten path is that era or that area of motivation of passion, of of inspiration is viewed as a nice to have. When in fact, when you look at how human beings behave, that's at the heart of what we invest most of our time and energy in. It's essential. It's exactly. essential. I agree, right? Because how many people come out of of college and they go into a job that they could care less about that doesn't fulfill them? They look forward to the weekend. They don't look forward to Monday. I'm assuming you look probably you probably look forward to Monday. Oh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, every day I get to wake up connecting people with their best selves. I mean, the best possible version of themselves. It's, uh, how can you beat that? Exactly. Exactly. So I mean, yeah, we're missing. We're it's you're filling in a component that is that is missing from from the school world. And 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 I'll tell you, many of of Choir Nation students probably feel most fulfilled. In, in singing in the choir, right? Or, or, you know, in the drama club or in the musical and, and you know, expressing themselves artistically, right? And, and one of the things that we'd talk about for a young person, for example, with whom we work that is finding their passion singing, dancing in the choir and musical theater, uh, A is to explore that and B, crucially, why? 
why are those moments the moments where you feel most present and alive? Is it you're doing something with your passion about? Is it you're expressing who you really are? Is it that you're getting the admiration of your friends and strangers? Is it you're able to cultivate and develop something that you're genuinely really good at, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you identify those root causes, you can start to see those playing out in all kinds of other areas in your life in many ways uh, unexpectedly. And that's where I think a lot of the time we have breakthroughs is that things, you know, that, that, that are our passions. For me, it was games. For me, it was acting. For me, it was writing. I realized like, oh, what if I could manifest that same feeling in entrepreneurship, in partnership, in, in being on the board of organizations, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 you know, and sometimes it's no, like, let's manifest that singing. Let's manifest that writing, right? So it's not always about doing something different, but it's about how do you bring all the disparate areas of your life into that space that your passion causes you to feel the most fulfilled about? I can't agree with you more, man. I, I, I think I'm so glad that Choir Nation has been able to, you know, to hear this. And, you know, we're, we're running, we're running a little bit long on time, but I really feel like this was such a, a essential conversation to have. And, uh, Zach, where can we find out a, a little bit more about the future project and where can we connect with you, uh, online moving forward? Amazing. Definitely check out the future project at thefutureproject.org. Uh, we're on Instagram at Dream Directors. We're on Twitter at Dream Directors. And we'd love for you to become a part of our movement. You know, as we open up uh, a lot more things than just Dream Directors in high schools, you know, we want people to be a part of that. Obviously, you know, any support that you can give, whether following at us, talking with us in the conversation, financially, uh, being interested in schools that you think would love Dream Directors. All of that matters to us. We also have a film out called Most Likely to Succeed. Premiered at Sundance last year. It's screening at community screenings all over the country. There have been over a 1,000 at this point. Uh, And you can check out, uh, if you just search for Most Likely to Succeed, I believe it's uh, mltsfilm.com is the website. Uh, We're trying to get that out there as a way of rethinking the experience of education. So uh, if you want to check me out, I'm at ZDCH on Twitter. Uh, If you Google Zach Hill, you'll probably find a bunch of stuff I've written for HuffPo, for literary magazines, for Star City, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty easily stalkable on the internet, and I'd love to hang out with anybody that was able to listen to this podcast. Great. Well, thank you, Zach. You've certainly helped Choir Nation to step up to their own podium with purpose today. So thank you very much for being my guest on the Find Your Forte podcast. Thank you so much. All right, Choir Nation. That was something completely different than I'm sure you're probably used to hearing on this podcast. I hope that you found it informative and fun. And I know I had a great time interviewing Zach Hill, and I hope you had a great time listening. Want to make sure that you always uh, know that you're welcome to join me online, facebook.com forward slash ryan.guth. There you'll see what's what's going on uh, in my world and some opportunities that I post on occasion for Choir Nation to get involved with some of the things that I do. And uh, follow me on Twitter at Ryan M. Guth or Instagram at Ryan M. Guth. And uh, we'll keep in touch online. Always feel free to email me. You can email me through my website, www.ryanguth.com. And we will see you next week for an interview with Nancy Shankman of NYU. She is one of the choral directors there at NYU. 
and she is just a genius at starting choirs um, and uh, you know getting people involved with singing um, that are not professionals. And she's really great at starting amateur choirs. Uh, and I, I really had a wonderful conversation with her. So that will be next week on the Find Your Forte podcast. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week until you hear from me again. Take care. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing.